0: Okay, so i have been talking about the seven points of um, cause and effect, the generating bodhicitta. Recognizing sentient beings as our mother, remembering the kindness of the mother, or whoever was the caretaker when we were little. Caregiver. Not caretaker. <laughs> Caregiver. And then uh, having a wish, a spontaneous wish to give something in return to those who've been kind. And from that naturally comes the heartwarming love, or the love that sees others as lovable. Okay, so there's um, several different kinds of love. There's uh, the heartwarming love that sees others as lovable, and that is the one that comes spontaneously from the first three causes and acts as the propelling agent for the great compassion, which is the next step. And then in addition, there's the great love, which wishes others to have happiness and the causes of happiness, and that one you can meditate on either before the great compassion or after the great compassion, or together with the great compassion. Okay, so there's, um, in Nagajina's text, Precious Garland, it talks about eight benefits of meditating on love, and so this is kind of nice to think about as an encouraging factor. I mean, besides the fact that that when you think of of a heart that has love, it's something that's really desirable that we all want to have. Somehow, when it comes to meditating on it, you know, it's like, I just don't have the energy. (laughs) You know, much rather watch the news and get good and depressed, (laughs) you know, than meditate on love. Do you see what's going on in the mind then? You know, you sit and watch the news. You're completely passive. You just let the TV run your mind. You know, meditating on love, we actually have to be active. We have to cultivate something within ourselves. Maybe we should meditate on love and then watch the news. And then meditate on compassion after the news. You know? Okay, so eight benefits of meditating on love. The first two are that the the gods, the celestial beings, and also other human beings will be friendly to us, and we can readily see that, you know, people who are very kind, who have a loving heart, other people naturally gravitate towards them, they don't need to do a whole lot um, to have friends or or anything like that. Whereas people who aren't very loving, who who are quite defensive and, and easily annoyed, then it's it's much more difficult for other people to be friendly to them. So we can naturally, you know, see these first two benefits just from our own experience. You know, so not only human beings, but also celestial beings, the gods. As they say, that there's different, you know, beings in the gods, some of them might even be coming to listen to teachings tonight. <laughs> so, actually, you know, it's one of the, the prayers I before His Holiness teaches, you'll see the lamas before they teach, they always hold their hand like that. And they do a special prayer inviting the, the gods to come and listen. Because some of them can practice Dharma too. Okay. Then the, the third benefit of meditating on love is that even non humans will protect you. So here it's thinking about animals and also different spirits. Um, so we get and also human beings. You know, again, people who are kind and other beings very willingly protect them. When there's people who aren't very nice. When they get harmed, other people stand around and go, "Ah, oh, good. I'm glad you got it." You know, you can just that. I mean, it's obvious. Okay, then the fourth one is um, that we will have um, mental ease, and our mind will be will be happy and relaxed. And so again, when we meditate on love, when we really wish others well, our mind is happy and relaxed. When we wish others harm, when we cling on to hurt and pain, then our minds aren't relaxed at all. Our minds are quite tight. You know, then we have to take valium, we have to, <laughs> <laughs> you know? or you have to, you know, call a the therapist or, you know, do something because the mind's really unhappy, really tight. And then uh, the fifth one is that we'll have many, just much happiness in general, meditating on that. So not only mental ease, but just generally in the conditions of of our life, much happiness. And our body will also be relaxed. You can see, again, you know, how the mind affects the body. When the mind's um, quite tight, then, you know, you get ulcers and, you know, the immune system goes down. When the mind is very loving and very relaxed, then the body also tends to be relaxed. And then the sixth benefit is of meditating on love is that poisons and weapons won't harm you. Uh, I dare say that if you meditate on love, you probably wouldn't be involved in too many wars and around too many weapons. It's a so difficult <laughs> for them to harm you. But well, I guess this is talking about some kind of special ability, you know, that that comes as a result of karma for somebody who meditates very regularly on love. That either, even there's external things like weapons or poison that that are directed towards them, then those things don't work, you know, because of the person's accumulation of good karma. Actually, and love itself has has the power to subdue. There's a story of, of the Buddha, I think I told you, about the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, who who sent the, you know, because Devadatta is very jealous of his cousin, the Buddha, and so sent this wild elephant to charge after him, and the elephant got in the presence of the Buddha and just was so overwhelmed by the power of his love that he bowed down. One time I was in Malaysia and, and somebody was telling me, you know, that they were having problems with somebody so that, and so they were meditating on love so that this other person would stop bothering them. (laughs) And I said, um, well, you meditating on love because you really love the other person or because you're thinking about your own benefit and you want them to stop bothering you because one way you're meditating on love and the other way you aren't. And then the seventh benefit of uh, meditating in love is that effortlessly we will um, attain our aims. Okay? So, again, just even in in worldly things or things, you know, temporal things, if we have a kind heart, a loving heart, then things very easily get done because we have a nice demeanor, we approach people kindly, other people want to help us, so those aims get accomplished easily. Our spiritual aims also get accomplished easily when the heart is very loving, because, you know, love is one of the causes for the bodhicitta, for the altruistic intention, and then with that, then the mind becomes very powerful, creates a lot of positive potential, you know, has a lot of energy to, um, you know, to co- to collect both the positive potential and the wisdom necessary to attain the realizations. So also our spiritual Aims get accomplished quite easily when when we meditate on love, and then we'll also be reborn in the world of Brahma. That's if you dedicate for that. Hopefully, we won't dedicate for that. Um, Brahma is one of the four realm gods. Uh, Form realm is one of the realms that's considered more pleasurable than the human realm. You get born there by having deep states of concentration, and Brahma is kind of the king of the four realm. Actually, it's quite interesting, so I'm just going to sidetrack for a minute into br- about Brahma, because um, when you compare the Buddhist view of Brahma, there, there's some similarities between that view of Brahma and the Christian concept of God. Because in Hindu society, Brahma is seen as the creator, and that the world came very much, um, you know, from the Hindu viewpoint. You know, the different parts of the world were created from different parts of of Brahma's body. From the Buddhist viewpoint, um, in the evolution of the world, the higher realms get created first. So the form realm is created first, and then um, then the human realm. And, all the, and then all the other lower realms. So in the evolution of this particular universe, Brahma was around first, and then, you know, humans and animals and everything else. So by the time the humans and animals came, Brahma had been there before, so they said, well, he created us. And so that's how Brahma got the status of the creator, okay, from the Buddhist viewpoint, not from Hindu viewpoint. Um, You know, but it's an interesting thing when you think of the Christian concept of God, you know, because in in some ways there's some kind of similarities there, you know, seen as a creator, seen as a very powerful being, um, you know, and who knows, maybe what the Christians worship, some Christians worship is Brahma, but call call him God. I mean, it's hard to say because everybody's concept of God is quite different. Anyway, the, the idea of, of being Brahma, why it's said as a benefit of meditating on love, is because for worldly beings, there are many, many Brahmas, by the way, um, then it's, it's a position of a lot of status and fame and well-being and good things happening to you. From a Buddhist point of view, even being reborn in an upper realm like that is unsatisfactory because after you use that karma, then again you have to take another rebirth and you're still bound in the cycle of existence. So that's why it's important not to get, dedicate our positive potential to be born as Brahma, but as, you know, as a Buddha, to become a Buddha. But you'll hear mm, the meditation on love as referred to the Brahma Vihara. and those of you who have followed the Vipassana tradition before, you know when they meditate on loving kindness and the four immeasurables, so it's called the, the four Brahma Viharas. And the reason that, that that is it's called that, you know, the abode or the place of Brahma, is because every time you, you meditate on love, you will be reborn as a Brahma for the number, the same number of times as the number of beings you included in your meditation when you meditated on love. Okay, so it's just saying that that this kind of meditation done with single-pointed concentration leads to that kind of rebirth. But again. You know, that's if you dedicate it that way, we're trying to dedicate it the merit for something else. Clear? Is it clear? Yeah, because you, you look a lot like when we are talking about the advantages of bodhicitta. Sometimes you know, the, the advantages are, are placed in terms assuming that maybe your level of mind isn't quite so high. And so, you you know, the first thing that gets you excited is by some immediate gain. Okay? So that they get you interested that way. And then they say, nope. <laughs> 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 Gotta be a Buddha. Can't be contented with this kind of rebirth. Okay? <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, is well, is, is Buddha formless? Buddha, um, the Buddhists take a form. You know, it's a manifestation of their wisdom. So you see, Shakyamuni Buddha, or you know, Avalokiteshvara, the different Buddhas, but they, these are like manifestations of their their um, their mind and their subtle energy coming out in that physical form. But the Buddha's mind, you know, is is totally formless. So we shouldn't think of of Buddha as like some isolated person inside a body, okay? Nor do we need to think of a Buddha as just some kind of amorphous blob, okay? (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) But, But more, you know, when we think of the qualities of wisdom and compassion and skill and things like that, those factors don't have form, because they're mental qualities. They're, they're things developed in, in your heart, and your mind. They don't have form. But in order to communicate with us, then the Buddha appears in forms, because that's the only way we can relate to them. We can't tune in. We don't have the hotline for Buddha's Dhammakaya mind. Um, yeah, so... Here, you know, as, as the, the meditation on love is described here, you know, you do it by doing the first three of the seven steps in the cause and effect. Or if you're meditating on the great love, then it's really wishing others to have happiness and its causes. In the Theravada tradition, they have a, a way of, of meditating on love that I, I think is quite nice. You know, and I think it's very good if we incorporate that in our practice. Um, And it can be used here at this point, too. And the way you do it is you start off with yourself and wishing yourself to be well and happy. The idea being that, you know, it's hard to love others if we don't wish ourselves well. So here we come back to the old thing of self esteem and wishing ourselves well. Which sometimes is our biggest problem. Okay, but to really sit and start out, and we can say, you know, may I be well and happy, and just think of the different kinds of happiness, the different kinds of wellness. Not only wishing ourselves to have hot fudge sundays and banana splits, but you know, really wishing ourselves well, and um, <laughs> you know, or tofu burgers, depending on you Um But wishing ourselves well in the sense of, you know, may I also have all the conditions necessary to practice dharma. You know, may I also meet pure teachings and teachers. May I quickly gain the realizations and free myself from cyclic existence. May I have the happiness of liberation and enlightenment. You know, really wishing ourselves well. That's really caring for ourselves. I mean, wishing ourselves to have a nice house and a nice car isn't necessarily taking good care of ourselves, because um, that might relieve some problems but cause other problems, whereas if we really wish ourselves to have the realizations in a very kind way, um, we see that we can free, free our minds. So we want to wish ourselves all the different kinds of happiness, both the worldly happiness and the other happiness. And then from there, you know, after spending some time just thinking about that and really develop, not just sitting and thinking, may I be well and happy, may I have this, may I have that, you know, not increasing the mind of attachment, but developing a feeling inside the heart of real affection for ourselves and wanting ourselves to be well and happy. Not just because I'm I, but you know, just because this is one living being. And then from there start with people who we are close to, who we get along well with, who we have a lot of affection for, and wish them to be well and happy. And so you can think of, of your good friends or, you know, like this. And it's it's kind of spontaneously, it's, it's easier to wish them to be well and happy. So again, think of the different kinds of happiness, most You know, may they have a good job, may they have security, may they have nice relationships, but also may they have the conditions to practice the Dharma, may they gain the realizations, may they be free of of cyclic existence altogether. And so spend some time really generating that feeling so that something changes in your attitude, some warmth comes. Then from there we move to strangers and wishing strangers, the guy on the street wishing them to be well and happy, recognizing that all these strangers are human beings just like us they have the same wish for happiness and to avoid pain. And so these things that we just wish for ourselves and for the, those who are near to us wish for the strangers and work on the mind thinking about this until the mind has the same kind of intensity of love towards them. And then move on to the people that we don't get along with very well. That one's, you know, much harder, isn't it? And, and really try and wish the people who harm us well, or the people that we don't like well. And in some ways, if you switch your mind just a little bit, it becomes actually easy to meditate on love for them. Because if you see that, you know, somebody has a very tormented life and carries around a lot of guilt or, or you know, hostility because of things that happened in their life, then, you know, you can, and that's why they harm you, or that's why they do the things you find so disagreeable, if you can think, may that person free themselves from that tight mind, may they free themselves from, from that kind of neurotic clinging, may they free themselves from that kind of pain. And so really imagining the people that we find disagreeable, you know, like their whole personality is transformed, so that, so that from their side they can be happy. And then automatically, it's quite interesting, as soon as we can imagine them happy, then we don't... We cease finding them so disagreeable, okay? And then from the people we don't get along with, then generate it towards all sentient beings. Okay? So we start out with ourselves, we go to friends, we go to strangers, to people we don't get along with, and then to all sentient beings. So there's a reason that it's done in this sequence. If we just started, may all sentient beings be well and happy. May all sentient beings have everything good. That's very easy because all sentient beings is this nice, safe, abstract concept, you know, um, that's quite separate from, you know, a chala when he scratches you and... (laughs) Um, the other guy, when he rams into your car and somebody else you criticize you, all sense it means this is a nice, tidy concept. So we don't want to start out with that. We want to, it's real important when we're meditating on love and compassion to think about individual cases, because that makes it, that forces our mind to change and not just get stuck in abstractions. End, you know, oh, okay, what I meant by disagreeable as is like inherently evil, you don't see the person as so inherently evil because all of a sudden their, their actions which you still may see as harmful, you can see what made them do what they did, okay, so you start being able to separate the person from the actions and see the actions as, as, disagreeable and harmful, but the person not really as disagreeable or inherently evil or anything like that? I, feel for him, but I can't really do that. You can't do what I'm saying now. Okay. Slowly, slowly work on it, develop the mind, the mind can change. Like actually saying that he not have a reason for, dying for dying. Well, like it, if you look, I mean, who knows his own psychological factors and his own way of thinking? Okay, yeah. But he had his reasons, and from his viewpoint, what he did seemed like the best thing. So, from his viewpoint, he meant well. From other people's viewpoint, what he looked like, what he did seemed you know, atrocious. But you can see that he as a person isn't inherently evil. He made those decisions and did those things due to certain mental factors, due to the conditions of his life, due to his habits and ways of thinking, okay? Yeah. But, his, but who Ronald Reagan is, isn't some kind of solid, permanent personality who's always going to be like this and just because you know, he has some bad qualities now, it just means, you know, he's always going to have those and he's always going to be evil. You know, because anybody, their personality is just a combination of different mental factors, you know, that come, that arise in the mind and go away, and Arise and go away. Okay?